0: Are you sinking tired of the financial bondage that's been holding you back? Are you ready to take charge of your finances to cut your mortgage payment in half while reducing your taxes significantly? If yes, then this podcast is for you. Fiscal fitness and freedom can pay off the national debt in less than 10 years. So, from humble beginnings of just about $500, Scott built a billion dollar mortgage company. So, here's your host. Scott Smith.
1: Hi, welcome to another episode of Fiscal Fitness and Freedom. And Laura, you've been monitoring the questions coming in. You said you had a couple of questions you've pulled up that our listeners might want answers to.
2: Yeah, they're starting to pile up. So I think we should start going through them. The first one was really interesting and it's asking me to predict the future. So get ready. They want to know if you think there will be another rate hike this year.
1: Okay, another rate hike by the Federal Reserve. So the Fed has been raising interest rates in an attempt to fight inflation. And I think they've been frustrated because it's proving hard to bring inflation under control. So I can't predict what they're going to do because I don't think they know what they're going to do yet. They're watching the same indicators everybody else is. So there's no real mystery there. But what I would point out is that raising interest rates does not automatically reduce inflation. The theory behind why it will is sound, but there's another piece to the puzzle this time. When you raise interest rates, People slow up on buying a house, and so house prices don't accelerate. They might slow up on buying credit, a car using their credit. It also impacts big business. So PE funds slow up in their activity of borrowing to buy different assets out there. So to an extent, interest rates can mitigate some inflation. But what I'm against using interest rates to control inflation because interest itself is inflationary. It's the fact that we have interest constantly piling up on the national debt and the entire economic system predicated upon the use of interest creates this growing of the money supply constantly, which is inflationary. So. The irony is we're using raising interest rates to bring inflation under control, but it is the entire use of interest in the monetary economy, the way we have it set up today, that is itself inflationary. And that's part of the problem there. Hope that answers that question.
2: I think it does, but now I'm, I think I've always kind of struggled with the concept of rate hikes and how it affects or curbs um, inflation. So could you explain it to me like I'm five? Like, I I think it's just, if you're raising the rates that to me seems inflationary. Like I now have to pay more for a house. Like now that's more for me, but technically it's supposed to do the opposite. Is it just to stop people from buying stuff and like mm-hmm. the supply will slow down or how does it work?
1: Yeah, that's, no, You're you're actually helping to make my point there. When interest rates are higher, it costs more to buy a house. Right. The theory, though, is then that forces the price of housing down some because people just can't afford those payments anymore. So interest, raising interest rates puts a damper on the economy. You know, it slows people from purchasing things. But you're exactly right interest itself is a cost, it's an expense, and it makes things more expensive in that regard, which is what puts the damper on the economy. But my point is the use of interest requires the money supply to grow all the time. So an example of that is, you know, in our 30 plus trillion dollars in national debt, the amount of interest we pay on that actually increases the deficit, and the debt grows faster because of interest. And that deficit and that is a form of money that's out there, and that's inflationary, devalues the dollar. When you devalue the dollar, that's what inflation is. So the entire monetary system, the way we set it up, is the culprit behind this thing. And we could change that. You know, under Banking 2.0, as I propose it, you would not have interest at all. And that would be the best way to go to bring this problem under control.
2: And so with these interest rates, it's not even going to the government or taxes or anything like that. It's just going to banks. So banks are, do banks profit off of higher interest rates? Or it's more of a, do they root for that?
1: Yeah, they're making a ton more money right now. They are. Yeah, it's uh, not a good system, is it?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like it's a little biased, but yeah, well, it's, it's very, always not made sense to me.
1: Yeah, it's the one of the dark sides to capitalism. You know, we're paying our taxes, part of our taxes are going to pay the interest on the national debt. You'd much rather your taxes be going to build schools or roads or keep the military strong so it's, it's interesting, the five biggest religions in the world all banned interest at one time or another. So that would be Islam, Christianity, Judaism, all, all of them, Buddhism, all banned interest. And when I went back and looked through the root scriptures behind that, the bans came at historical times where interest was destroying an empire. So empires like the United States have long risen and fallen based upon the impact of interest. So interest is for thousands of years. Man has seen interest as um, wreaking havoc on their economies, and it it has.
2: Are there any examples of civilizations or really your areas where they had interest and then removed it? And was it successful or have we all fallen back into doing it?
1: Wow. That's a really good question. Actually, yeah, there's a really interesting one. It's in the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. When they were rebuilding Jerusalem, Nehemiah got together with the leaders and pointed out that in previous scriptures, interest should not be charged. And he pointed out that what interest was doing was not just wreaking havoc on their economy in general, but it was really creating a bigger divide between the rich and the poor, and interest was impoverishing a large percentage of their population. So he got together with the financial leaders and they banned interest and they had a golden age at that period of time. Quite interestingly, in that same book in the Old Testament, they imposed a very small payment tax, just like I'm talking about. And the distribution of that went to the welfare of the people, And there was a golden age. So much to my surprise, a lot of the solutions that appear in the Financial Freedom Act, as I call my set of solutions, can be found in the book of Nehemiah in the Bible. And it worked. Wow. There are other other times in history in which we have either curtailed or banned interest and the impact has been good. Last thing I'd note on this is that um, Joseph Smith, probably one of the greatest economists over 200 years ago, in a book called The Wealth of Nations, in which he proposed very unrestricted economy, um, sort of free market type of a thing. His one exception to that was interest. He said, interest bothers him. It's damaging. And so he was not supportive of just uh, unfettered interest rates because he too saw the damage that interest does.
2: Wow, that's a lot of history. Thank you. Piggybacking um, off that, our next question is uh, do you think inflation is contributing to the rising rates of homelessness around the country?
1: Oh, yeah. I know we're
2: seeing this a lot in New York, but every time I step out there seems to be like a new encampment. I know San, or San Diego and Los Angeles, San Francisco we're seeing a lot of Just in the news, different things popping up for that.
1: Yes, there there are a lot of studies and sometimes it depends on which study you want to pick because the problem with a lot of these studies is they're biased and they're funded by a special interest group. And so lo and behold, the special interest group gets the answer they want out of the study.
2: (laughs) Shocking bias.
1: Right, that's nothing shocking, but it, it just adds to the divide and the mess out there. But there have been studies that I would deem to be thoughtful and somewhat objective. And the primary cause for someone to become homeless is a loss in their income. So if you interview homeless people, a great number of them were not homeless a year ago, 5 years ago, or 10 years ago and they had a job and so when when you have disarray in the economy it does contribute to homelessness there's another aspect of it too just sort of shows how narrow our views are you know in in one city you'll see an increase. And sometimes that's because homeless are moving into that city. And it's not indicative of something nationwide. But what I would also counter on that is that unemployment rates um, are not an accurate indicator of unemployment. Because if somebody stops looking for a job, if if they're not filing for unemployment, unemployment rates... Yeah, so unemployment generally runs at a higher level than is reported. And because the political leaders look bad when unemployment rates are higher, generally that indicator gives a, a more rosy indication than the truth is. And so yeah, homeless ties homelessness ties directly into loss of jobs and also the increase in rent. So in other words, somebody might have been able to afford an apartment and same job, they can't afford the apartment anymore. Now they're on the street. You can, if you spend time in homeless shelters, or if you spend time among the poor, and you hear the stories, you're going to realize that we're all in this together. And We need to address the issue in a different way than we're addressing it today. Again, I go back, I'm always going to go back to the Financial Freedom Act. And if you have that payment tax out there, which is a dramatic reduction in taxes for everyone and you're paying basic income at $2,000 a month, you're going to dramatically impact the homeless situation. And that's going to also stimulate the economy because if those people are able to rent something and have spending money. That's going to make a difference. Another impact on inflation and homelessness is the fact that we are so far behind in providing housing in total units. I've seen figures of 30 to 40 million, whether that's an apartment, that's an appreciable percentage of our population. That's increasing inflation and that's also contributing to homelessness. And higher interest rates will slow starts of new housing, which will be contrary to what we want. And the other aspect of it's just housing starts never really fully recovered after 2008. So that's a long time to have slower housing starts. Right. And a lot of that comes to higher local regulations. So the cost of building a new house is not just tied to interest rates, but it's also the permits and everything that's tied in with cities. And there have been some pretty profound studies that show that um, the regulatory aspect of housing contributes greatly to the cost of housing. To ballpark that, about one-third of the cost of an apartment unit is tied to lender expenses. One-third to government regulation and taxing and one-third to actually building it. So in other words, wow. you could argue that you could reduce the cost of uh, rent for people by almost two-thirds if you got rid of it. Any- mind-blowing. Yeah, because all that regulatory, that's uh, that's revenue to the local the governments. So if you had a payment tax that replaced that and they don't need that, you could dramatically reduce the cost of housing in our nation.
2: That's incredible to think about. I think when you talked a little bit about just the interest rates and cutting your mortgage rates in half, and now hearing like this other part of it where it's even more like two thirds, it's yeah. all those impacts would yeah. drastically reduce
1: housing. Yeah. that Those figures are a compilation of data that I've gotten from an economist in the D.C. area who does some pretty in-depth studies. And then some of the folks at the Multifamily Institute that represent apartment owners. And those are pretty, you can substantiate that type of data pretty well. It's, it's not a partisan type of a play. Yeah, I can't
2: imagine anybody would disagree with that.
1: No, I mean, we, we'd all benefit. It's again, you know, you've got a system in place that's working against itself. When you start, when you're taxing the wrong thing to begin with and you're charging interest, hey, this is the economy you get.
2: Right. This is the result of exactly what we planned. Right. Um, so now, on the other side, how is the economy impacting small businesses?
1: Oh, we had a, yeah. That, okay. That's a, our okay. last question for today. Okay, so that, that one actually is fascinating. You know, there are the official economic indicators that are out there that the government publishes, and then there's unofficial indicators that often mean more, and they touch on things that the official indicators can't measure at all. So the amount of, um, like, I used to notice that going to New York, the amount of taxis on the street, the amount of people ride, tied to the economy
2: you
1: know <laughs> it was far harder to get it catch a ride when the economy was booming and and there were cabs and lines. When <laughs>
2: there were, was uh, so and, much uh, cab money
1: <laughs> but if you talk to cpas who are accountants who have small businesses as their customers they notice the ability of their customers to meet payroll each month or every two weeks goes up and down. And um, not a scientific sampling, but in a, the group of CPAs that I talked to about this, we're at an all-time high in which upwards of 90% of the small businesses' proprietorships that they're doing the books for are having trouble meeting payroll and that's worse than prior to 2000 during the crash in 2008 so that's alarming um, it's also worse than when we had dot-com and some of these cpas i know were in business when we had the snl crisis and so um i have a feeling that among small businesses they're really on the ropes they're really on the ropes. And as we heard in my interview with Amy Nelson, prior to the pandemic, we were at an all-time low historically on new small business starts, startups. And so, we, um, I think there is a shifting towards consolidation in large businesses that are running monopolies and duopolies and that is harming small businesses in general. But I think where the economy is now post-pandemic and with the higher interest rates, that small businesses are really on the ropes right now. Again, you go back into the proposals in the Financial Freedom Act, it would help small businesses immensely. We can go into more detail on that sometime. And it would also help to provide capital to jumpstart startups too, which are necessary to replace those small businesses that have fallen by the wayside. So yeah, the right. not, economy's not looking good for small businesses right now.
2: Those are all the uh, questions we um, have for today. I think um, we're going to start working so through down, most of them.
1: own episode. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. Do you want to give our listeners some instructions if they want to submit their own questions?
1: Oh, yeah. So go to financialfitnessandfreedom.com. At the bottom of the page, there's an Ask Fiscal Fitness and Freedom. Yes, at the bottom of the page. Push that button and you can ask a question. And we listen to those questions and we're going to answer them on this this episode. And I I would just conclude this episode as saying the way we're running the economy today We're just in for more and more hard times. But the main theme I like to come back to is that technology has us on the brink of prosperity. It's our monetary economy and the way we're running the monetary economy today that is pulling us down. We can make changes on that and our nation can experience a higher level of prosperity than it ever has because of technology, if we make some corrections to our financial operating system. Awesome,
2: thank you so much, Scott.
1: Thank you, Laura. We'll see you all next time.
0: So that's it for today's episode of Fiscal Fitness and Freedom. Head on over to iTunes or wherever you listen and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week who posts a review on iTunes. We'll win a chance in a grand prize drawing to win a $25,000 value grand prize drawing for a private VIP mentoring session with Scott Smith himself. Be sure to head on over to FiscalFitnessandFreedom.com and pick up a copy of Scott's blueprint to discovering your own unique formula to personal success and join us on the next episode.